0: talking about the future church. Now, if this is any indication of what the future is like, come on, y'all. The future should be bright. It should be exciting. We should look forward to it. We should have some hope. Uh, I'm one of those guys that uh, I get excited about what God is doing in my life, and I get excited about what I believe God wants to do in the church. And so, uh, I-, I want you to—I want you to match uh, my jog. Okay, I'm not going to run with y'all today. I think that might be a little too much. But I want you to match my jog. And a couple things uh, I'm going to give you is I, I get passionate. Uh, about the word of God. I get passionate about the church. I get passionate about whatever it is that God has laid on my heart. And so I want you to not be alarmed, but I want you to be excited about where we're going. Uh, The other thing is, uh, I'm gonna get loud, I'm gonna get sweaty. And so don't let that distract you, all right? (laughs) Uh, When I think about the future Of the church, and then being invited to be here this week, uh, I thought about something, and I wondered to myself. I said, "I don't know that I'm a a futurist. Uh, There are guys who are in the in in the church camp uh, that call themselves futurists. They look ahead and forecast, and they do all those things. I, I don't know that I am a futurist. What I am, though, is a guy who respects what it is that God has done, is doing, and will do." And so uh, what I'm going to do today is I I, I heard a quote by Erwin McManus, who's one of these guys who calls himself a futurist. He says to be a futurist in the church, you need only to see the present clearly. I'm going to repeat it again. Erwin McManus says to be a futurist in the church, you need to only see the present clearly. I, I agree with most of this statement, but I don't agree with all of it. I agree with most of it, but I don't agree with all of it. When he says only, that's the only word that I disagree with. Here's the reason why. Because I agree with the fact that we need to understand where we currently are in order to navigate where we're going to go. I agree with that statement 100%. I believe that you cannot determine where you're going until you determine where you are. I'm a guy who's big on leadership, and I believe that leaders see around corners. I believe that they see what's, what's possible and what might happen, and they lead their people in the best direction possible. And so what Irwin says is, understanding where you are today, looking ahead. It's great to be a futurist in the church if you know where you currently are. But that word only... Bugs me because I need to know a little bit more than where I am. I also have to know where I've been. And when we talk about the future church, we have to understand that the church is not a new idea, nor is it a new concept, nor is it something that we've made up or will create in the future. The church is Jesus' idea. Church is Jesus' concept. The church is what Jesus has called us to, and so I don't want you to laugh at me. Don't make fun of me. Don't 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 write me off. I'm going to take you to one of the. I'm gonna, actually I want to take you back to the first future church conference. I want to take you to the first future church conference, and, and, and the scripture is going to be so basic, so elementary, so common, so so obvious in a future church conference that you're going to laugh. But I think it, it behooves us to go back to the original statement of the church. In Matthew chapter number 16, the Bible gives us the first future church conference. Why? Because there was no church. Jesus talks about the church. And in talking about the church, he tells them what the future is supposed to look like. He tells them what the future holds. And if you know anything about this, I'm going to summarize real quick what we're doing. Jesus and his disciples find themselves in the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asks them a question. I'm Robert White. I'm giving you the RWV, the Robert White version right here. He asks them who people are saying he is. And there's already this disruption of the religious system. There's already this change that is happening to the institution that they would would have been used to. And Jesus is asking some future questions. He's saying, "Hey, hey, I know that I am the one who's come on the scene. I preach differently than everyone else does. The Bible says that he taught not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He's a different kind of preacher. He's disrupted the traditional system. He's doing things and are asking him, why don't you follow the tradition of the elders? He, he's, he's biblically based. His methods are different, but his message is even better than, than the message that they've heard before. He's giving them a solid message with some new methods. And he's saying, what are people saying about me out there? And the disciples, they give him some answers. They throw some things out. And then the guy who is prone to put his foot in his mouth says to Jesus, oh, you're the Messiah the son of the living God. And Jesus makes a profound statement to him. He says, oh my God, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't get this from from your books. You didn't get this from your library. You didn't get this from your conversations. The spirit of God has revealed this to you. You are, this is an amazing thing. And he says in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Here it is. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock, here it is, I will build my church. Pastor Ariel just told us that, that we don't call it our church because it's not our church. These are not our people. These are not our buildings because Jesus has told us from the beginning of the church that he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The amount of wheels in this text tells us that this was the first future church conference. And the continual of the wills, that Jesus did not start it and allow it to continue to go without him. No, he is the perpetual builder of the church. And so today, I want to talk about the fact that Jesus has given us a great future. J- Jesus has given us a great Future, and we can look back at this particular passage and look at a couple of things in this text that will give us an understanding of what that future looks like. Now, before I jump into three things that I'm gonna give you, because that's what preachers do, we give you three things and then we get out of your way. Uh, I want to give you a, 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 little, a little something about me. I'm sorry, this beard and this mic are having a wrestling match, and I hope y'all aren't getting disturbed by it. But uh, the, the, there, there's a couple of things I want you to know about me. One, I love sports. Any, any sports lovers in the house in here? All right, so the five of us are going to have a great time. Everybody else is going to struggle uh, for the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, I love sports. I mean, I'm a sports Right now, I am in heaven. The NFL draft is happening while we are speaking. I am having a hard time. My ADD is in overdrive because I want to know who's being drafted by who. I mean, I sit and I watch it. I study it. I love it. I'm a football fan through and through. I used to play football. I love football. Got friends that played uh, professional football. Like, love it because I am a sports fan. Listen, I love the NBA. The NBA playoffs are going on right now. I don't care who your team is. Your team doesn't matter. I'm a Laker fan. They are the only team that exists in all of the world. All right? And so, as the NBA playoffs are going, and I've been thinking about the NBA playoffs, somebody was asking me what I think about superstars. What do do I think about superstars? I said, there's not a superstar on any team that I deem a superstar if, at the end of the game, you don't want the ball in their hands. You, you, you can't call yourself a superstar if you've got great skills and all these things. You're a great teammate. You're maybe one of the great rebounders or one of the great people, but to be a superstar. I mean, you can be a star, but you can't be a superstar unless at the end of the game, your coach, the other players, the fans, they all know that they want you to have the ball in your hands at the end of the game, which means when they look ahead to a situation that is destined to happen, When they look ahead to a situation that is inevitable. When they look ahead to a situation where it looks dire, they want the ball in your hands. And I say this, that Jesus, when he predicts something about the church, he makes a statement that I need for you to understand. He says, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Jesus looked 2,000 plus years into the future and knew what we would face. He is not taken by surprise by all of the things that are happening in our world. And he says, I have chosen you to have the ball in your hands in this season. That you sit in this room, not as leaders who are trying to figure out what's going to happen next. No, you sit in this room with the confidence of a savior who over 2,000 years ago knew that this day would come. And you will be leading in your context. He says, I want the ball in your hands. He's given us this great opportunity to lead the church into the future, looking ahead at what what is next. What we can have assurance of is that Jesus has confidence in us. It was said before us, I love doing conferences like this because we're all going to say some variation of the same thing. And I'm telling you today, God has confidence in you as a leader. And I need for you to see that he wants you to have the ball in your hands. And so when we think about hands, I want to give you three points to deal with our hands and his hands. The first thing I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, uh, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, just write this down anyway. It'll It'll bless you some other time. Here we go. The first thing I want you to realize is the church is in good hands. When we think about the future church, 2030, 2040, 2050, play this back to any conference that you want to have until the return of the Messiah. I need you to understand the church is in good hands. Don't 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 ever doubt that, don't ever question that, don't ever wonder it. I know that for the last few decades talks about the decline of the church in the western world have been steady. Statistically speaking, the American church is going in the wrong direction. More people associate with no religion than the religion that they affiliated with over the last 20 years. If you're sitting in this room, if you've read Morgan stuff, if you've read Newhock, if you've read Barna, you know these statistics. The church is going in the wrong direction in the modern world. Robert, you just said the church is in good hands. Now you're giving us the dire stats. You're right. Because I want you to see something. I want you to hear something. Statistically speaking, We're going in the right wrong direction. The rise of the nuns has been a continual concern. As Gen Z has been pronounced a generation that has less of a biblical worldview than all previous living generations at 4%. 4% of Gen Z identify with having a, a, a biblical worldview. We are going in the wrong direction. When I hear these stats... And I hear it over and over and over again, how the church is declining, how youth are leaving the church, how people are not identifying with Christian values anymore. People don't identify with the scripture. They don't believe in God anymore. They're identifying with no religion. When I hear these stats, it can sometimes make me feel like I'm lost. And I don't have any more hope. A few weeks ago, uh, I was in a parking garage in this uh, place where I went to have lunch with a guy from our church. We were going to have lunch. I parked my car in this garage. I had never been there before. When I got back to the uh, to the parking garage, I forgot where I parked. Ever happen to anybody you forgot where you parked? Y'all just going to leave me? Okay, thank you for those of you who will agree. Uh, uh, I forgot where I parked. So I'm walking around, and I went to floor three where I thought I parked. And I got to floor three, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, my car's got to be here. And I'm looking, and my car's not there. And I go to floor four, and I say, okay, I'll just walk up the little ramp. You know, it's one of those garages. I walk up the ramp, I still don't see my car. So then I do what you're supposed to do when you can't find your car. I hit the panic button. I hit the panic button because now I'm starting to panic. I got another appointment. I'm already late for it. I hit the panic button. My car doesn't have the horn sound when you do it. It's weird. It does this little siren noise when you do it. I'm like, why would y'all do that? So it does this little siren. noise. I can hear the siren, but I can't find my car. I hear the siren, but I can't find my car. So I'm moving around and I'm trying to find my car. I hear it, but I can't find the car. I, I, I hear the siren and as I'm trying to get close. I can't get close enough to my car. I'm walking up and down every aisle till this guy drives by security. I think he thought I was messed up. I think he thought something was going on with me because I'm looking around, I'm listening. He's probably like, this guy's on something. I need to get him out of here. This is dangerous. He asked me if I need some help. I said, yes, sir. I can't find my car. He says, "Well, what are you doing?" I said, "Well, I'm listening. If you can listen, there's a little siren going off in the background. If you can drive me to where my my car was, my car is. I, I'm telling you, this is the sound. I hear the sound. I just can't get close." And He drove me to my car, and I found it. What What are you saying, Robert? When I hear stats like this, it makes me feel like this time, when I lost my car in the garage while I was frustrated at my lack of progress, I knew that I had no other option but to pursue the sound. I couldn't just give up. There was a frustration in me, but I couldn't just give up. I couldn't find what I was looking for, but I couldn't just give up. When we hear these statistics about the church, there are some of us who are hearing them or are saying, I'll just give up. I'll just quit. I'll just wait for the return of the Messiah. I'll just sit down and wait for him. I mean, I got my salvation. Things will be okay. No, there is no other option but for us to continually pursue the sound. What is the sound? It is the voice of Jesus saying, upon this rock I will build my church. It is the voice of Jesus that is steady leading you to the place of your destiny. Steady leading you to the place of your purpose. Steady leading you to where he wants you to be. You cannot give up no matter how frustrated you are if we aren't careful we can hear these stats see the decline and stop heading toward the sound the sound the promising voice of jesus the reality is the future of the church is in good hands they're in the hands of jesus We're in the hands of Jesus. Jesus made a promise. He says, upon this rock, watch this, I will build my church. Now, I'm intentionally giving you this first, and then we'll talk about some things that we need to do. But the truth of the matter is, before you think about anything that you need to do, remember Jesus promised to build the church. One of the things that we're so scared of is messing this thing up. When the only thing we're called to do is surrender to the one who builds. I'm going to say that again. We're so afraid of messing it up. What if we don't reach the next generation? What if we don't move with the times? What if we're outdated? What if we don't do this right? What if we don't say this right? What if you surrender to the master and let him do what he said he would? What if you gave God his opportunity to build the church the way that he promised? Or do you not trust him like you say you do? Or do we not believe the word that we tell other people we're preaching? Or do we not trust That he can do what he's able to do. If Jesus, can I just give you a little, a little side note of inspiration? If Jesus could come back from the dead, he, he could take care of the church. If Jesus could conquer hell, he can take care of the church. Every promise that he's made, he's kept. And he's not going to stop keeping that promise now. He said, upon this rock, what is the rock? The confession of our faith that Jesus is the Messiah. As long as we are preaching Jesus, he said, he'll build his church. As a matter of fact, here's what he said. If I be lifted up, I'll draw people to myself. He said, if I be lifted up, conversions will happen. He says, if I be lifted up, transformation will take place. Jesus is the one who builds. The church. While rates of Christianity are declining in the West, the increase of the faith uh, 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 of what's known as the Global South is staggering the Global South. Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds in other countries. Well, why are you bringing that up for us, Robert? I mean, it's not where I live. It's not my evangelistic plan. Those baptisms don't go on my record. My end of year report. Here's what I need you to remember. Jesus is building the church. And if there's a decline in one hemisphere and an increase in another, it proves to us that this is the thing. Statistics are not bound to our Western world. The church being built is not bound to our Western world. And I'm not saying we need to give up. What I am saying is there's evidence that Jesus is still building the church with less technology, with less resources, with less opportunity, where people are under persecution, Jesus is still building his church. And if we got all that we have, we have no reason to worry. The Bible says that he will build his church. And I I, thank you. You can say amen to that. You can say amen to that. Jesus said he would build the church, according to the World Database of Christianity, over the last 100 years. Watch this. Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa has grown over 7 thousand percent and it's steadily increasing. Y'all think about this. This is staggering. African missionaries are on mission to advance the gospel across the globe. I got a friend who lives in New York who told me that African missionaries came to New York and said that New York needs the gospel. <laughs> Y'all, 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 y'all act like this. We, we, We used to make statements, maybe unfairly, I'll talk about that in a little bit, that we needed to make sure that we got the gospel to the most remote places in Africa. Now, Africans are coming here to share the gospel with us. Because Jesus will build his church. It's not your strategy, it's not your program, it's not your four laws, it's not your three circles. Praise God for the stuff that we have. Thank God for the tools. But let me tell you something, it is Jesus who builds the church. And the reason why I'm harping on this for a little bit is because the reality is so many times we lose because we are moving away from the fundamentals. We're moving away from what it is that's basic. We need to get back to basics. There's there's another uh, study from Pew Research that talks about the Latin American church. And what it says about the Latin American church is that uh, by 2050, there will be 675, watch this, million Christians in Latin America, and the Caribbean. In Asia, the gospel is traveling so fast and so rapidly that people cannot keep up with the Asian house churches and the underground movement that's happening. Why do I bring this up? Because Jesus is building his church. Jesus made a promise. And there's one thing that Jesus is. He is a promise keeper. Thank you. If there's one thing that Jesus is, he is a promise keeper. Say this with me. The church is in good hands. Not only is the church in good hands, but watch this. The church can use your hands. The church is in good hands. That means that Jesus will build his church. Jesus is the master architect. He has the plan. He has the power. He has the provision. He has all of those things for the church. The church is in good hands. Jesus won't let the church fail. But Jesus has chosen you to work with him to build the church. The church is in good hands, but the church can use your hands. Good. (laughs) You ready? What started as a movement in an upper room of 120 people with 12 leaders dedicated to one savior is now a global movement. Think about what I just said. The church is in good hands, but the church can use your hands. It was started as a a movement, rather, in an upper room of 120 people with 12 leaders dedicated to one Savior has now become a global movement. It, It spans the globe. Jesus made a promise. He said, I'll need you, watch this, to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And while Jesus was the one building the church, he used our hands to do it. These, these people who are submitted and obedient to God has spread the news and the message to people from place to place, generation to generation, culture to culture, plant continent to continent, just so that we can see this move today. Now, Why do I say the church can use your hands? As we think about the future of the church, I want you to remember that we talk about the decline of Christianity in the West, but I want you to also think about the fact that the influence of the church in the West has created this celebration that we just talked about. In some ways, in some ways, that Christianity in the West, as it was dominant for centuries, helped to contribute to this mass influence of Christianity in the world. Now, it is not the only influence. That's one of our problems. It is not the only influence of Christianity in the world. Now, now, I will be intellectually dishonest and irresponsible if I didn't say that several of the tactics attached to the evangelization of the Western world were at times sometimes insensitive at best and cruel at worst. However, Paul says that the, the gospel has gotten out. And so we praise God for that. Does not mean we approve of every method in which the gospel was shared. But we praise God that the gospel has gotten out. Why do I bring this up? The church can use your hands, which means if the church is in decline in the place in which we live, but it's growing in places that we've had influence, that means God can resurrect the place that we're in too. But the church needs us to cooperate, work alongside of Jesus, and make sure that we are building, watch this, his church. Jesus makes a statement on that faithful day. He says, and on this rock, I'll build my church. The problem is we've forgotten what the church is. And you just got a good message about a good definition of the church and why the church exists. And I want to give you an even further definition to go back. Jesus uses a word that would not have been translated church in the first century. That word ecclesia would have simply been those who are called out. You, you, you know this, but you understand that this was also considered at times a political assembly of people who had influence, who sat at the gate, watch this, who, who met and discussed things. And then out of that, there was a transformation and a change. The Bible says, you are my ecclesia. You are my called out, those who have the influence to go back and to make change. The Bible says that we are called to be the change agents in the world. That while the church is in the hands of Jesus, he also wants to use your hands. He wants to use my hands. He wants to use the hands and feet of the people of God. There are three things that I want to give you within this, when the church using our hands, that I believe that the future church is, nece- is a- are going to be necessary, rather, for the future church. That I believe are attached to the concept of church in its original context. Here it is. If we go look back, we see that the church is going to need to, there's going to be a necessity rather for conversation, for conversation. I believe that the church, after a while, after we go through church history, and you see there were persecutions and places where people had to stand for what they believe in, fight for what it is that they could say to, to be in public as a Christian was dangerous. But then as the Western world developed and we have all of this, these amenities and all of this power and all of this stuff, we then become the authorities speaking to subordinates about what we believe and what they should have. Yet we've cut off the conversations with one another. The problem with the church now is that we expect this direct line of, I say it, it's right, you believe it, you walk with me now. Come on. That's what we look like. We don't want conversations as much as we want conversions. And I pray to God that he gives us conversions. But the reality is we're forcing or we're trying to force conversions through fear, punishment, reward. This is why you get bad doctrines. It's going to get quiet here. That, let's go back to that. I'll build my church. This is true. This is where we get bad doctrines. This is where we start to use fear tactics to draw people in because we don't want to have a conversation about a God who exists and who we can have conversation about because we're not readily equipped. Eric will come back later and talk to us about why we need to be equipped. Here's the reality. We use fear. We use punishment. We use reward. Now you got gospels that tell people about the rewards of serving God, which I do believe that serving God and working with God and being in the presence of God are rewards, but I don't serve God strictly for a reward. We need to begin to have conversations with people about the truth of the gospel. We're gonna have to facilitate conversations with people who don't assume what you assume, who don't believe what you believe. And without a conversation, y'all, We're going to find ourselves in a position where the ears are cut off and every conversation that we avoid having or or, or every conversion that we want to have because we're avoiding a conversation we won't get because people are tired of seeing us bully them into a relationship with Jesus. We've got to have conversation. Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. This was a place, an ecclesia of called-out people, people who would sit at the gate and have, watch this, conversation. As I was introduced, they said that I I I work with African-American evangelists, and one of the things that is plaguing the African-American community where I am is spiritual syncretism. And I know it's not just African-Americans. I just can give you some specific examples of it because of how who I'm working with. There are people who are having spiritual syncretism, and here's what's happening. Because of some of the things that they have heard and some of the abuses that they've experienced, they no longer want to hear from an authority figure about the church. What they're doing now is they're seeking some type of alternative. Where can I find my identity? And so now what we have in the culture of black churches is black identity cults, like the black Hebrew Israelites, moving into the minds of people, telling them that they are the true people of God, and they don't have to follow the New Testament. They need to go back to the laws and the commandments of God, uh, preaching to them spiritual bondage through legalism. But because they're looking for an identity and no one in, the, in, in America is willing to have a conversation about the facilitation of Christianity to black people, here's what's happening. They're being carried away because where there's an absence of truth, there's a void, and a lie will always fill it. I need you to understand that if we aren't willing to talk truth, if we aren't willing to have conversations, if we aren't willing to facilitate these conversations, lies will continue to prevail. There's another lie that I find in the African-American community context, and, and here's the thing. You go back to your context and you identify the lies that are being told and then say, how can I have a conversation of truth? How can I have a conversation with somebody not to tell them how, how messed up they are, how beat up they are, but, but for the future church, they're going to need somebody that's willing to listen. And then ask some questions. And then on the other side of that question, present some opposite theories to say, well, have you considered? Here's a lie that's being called in my community. And I have to, I have to listen to this lie. That Christianity is a European invention designed to support the oppression of black people. It's a lie. It's a lie because Christianity predates the, the, the transatlantic slave trade. Christianity predates the, the times when, when when slave masters were indeed forcing Christianity on slaves. That's the truth. But we don't want to talk about that conversation of truth. Well, let's let that be in the past. But well, there are people who are actually dying because they haven't been able to have the conversation. Let's sit across from people and have the conversation so that we can dispel the lie. If we're unwilling to have the conversation of truth, the enemy will always slip in and have a conversation of a lie. You don't believe me? Genesis chapter number three. Genesis chapter number three. The enemy slides in, slips in, and the first sin, the fall of man, is a is a lie that the enemy tells. And Adam is sitting there with the truth silently. And the enemy is having a conversation with his wife. And because he doesn't speak up, I mean, y'all know what happens, right? It's the future church conference. Maybe we need to go all the way back to the first first people conference <laughs> because he refuses to facilitate a conversation with his wife and say hey what he's saying is a manipulation of the facts what he's saying is trying to play on your identity what he is saying everything that i'm saying is true of black people in this context is true of what the enemy was doing to eve which the reason why i can bring up my context to you is because the enemy doesn't have any new tricks guys He does the same thing in your context. For my context, it's black identity cults. For your context, it might be spiritual things like witchcraft and things that, that celebrations of the dead and things like that that happen that that don't line up with Christianity. Spiritual syncretism that we mix with our Christianity. In your case, it could be Christian nationalism where we review our Christianity and and conflate it with our governmental views. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter. He's playing in your identity and manipulating facts, and here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to stray away from the conversation of truth and the problem is we have refused to engage in conversation can i say this eric and i know i'm gonna get in trouble i might get kicked out here's the truth the reason why we don't want to have a conversation is because we ourselves are ill-equipped And really where we find ourselves is afraid of having a conversation of truth because we don't believe, we don't know if that little thread that they pull will unravel the faulty, shaky faith that we do have. The future of the church, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The future of the church is going to be a church that's willing to have a conversation. The future of the church is also a church that's willing to emphasize connection. Got to be willing to emphasize connection. The church can use your hands and you can be the one that facilitates this conversation or emphasizes connection. Technology has shifted forever how we live. Listen, if you're in this room right now and you're waiting for the internets to go away, I feel bad for you. If you're you're in this room right now and you're waiting for the good old days, you're licking stamps and saying it's going to go back, they'll never go away feel bad for you. If you're sitting in this room right now and you make statements about how things are going to go back to how they used to be, listen, technology has changed the way we live forever. COVID did not change anything. Y'all like? Yes, it did. It changed my church. No, it expedited your church. It forced your church into a future you were not willing to accept. I said that too fast. I think I should say it again. COVID did not change anything. It expedited it. It forced your church into a future that you were refusing to accept. The internet is not going anywhere. It has changed the way we do church. Anybody ever heard of Chat GPT? Raise your hand. Hi, I need to see your, okay. Y'all are future church. That's why y'all here. ChatGPT. Some of y'all are preachers. Shame on you. You're writing your sermon on Chat GPT. If you don't know what ChatGPT is, ask one of these people, their raise your hands again because I don't have time to explain it. Here's what I need for you to see. I need for you to see that technology is here to stay. And there's a generation, I got two daughters, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. They don't know life without being connected to their friends via social media. They don't know life without without texting and being on an iPad. They don't know life this way. As a matter of fact, they'll probably text me later to tell me they love me and they miss me. And then when I FaceTime them, they'll tell me they can't do it because they're texting their friends. There's, there, there, there's a generation that this is completely different. But here's the reality. With all of our technology, with all of our advances, with everything that we have, we are not just the most... Uh, technologically advanced generation ever. We are the most isolated and lonely generation ever. Why? Because we were not designed to meet with each other from a distance. The Bible says that we are not to forsake. This scripture just seemed like a church gathering scripture until now. You are not to forsake the gathering of yourselves. The Bible says that when we don't come together and connect in community, we're losing something. One of the first things that God says to Adam is he says, hey, man, I need you to go out and I need you. You can eat from every tree of the garden. You're free. He says, just don't eat from the tree in the middle. Call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, and then go and name every animal. Do what you do. God watches Adam and he sees him frolicking, no clothes on. Through the garden, Adam should be happy. And God looks at him and here's what he says. This isn't good. He said, this isn't good. I don't think the man should be alone. Now, God is not having a revelation. He's omniscient. He already knew this, but he had to allow Adam to live in this isolation for a period so that when he got connection, he would long for it. Watch what happens. Adam then Adam then is told by God it's not good for him to be alone, but wait a minute. Wasn't God there? Adam wasn't necessarily alone. No, God was there. But here's what God says. You need human connection and interaction. He's created us for one another. The future of the church is not just to be more technologically advanced than we've ever been, but it's to be more connected with each other than we've ever been. You remember that woman who had an issue of blood? This woman who has an issue of blood, she, she finds herself going, the Bible says, from doctor to doctor, and she couldn't get well. She, she went, watch this, to the most advanced medical technology of her day, but yet she still needed to touch someone. She said, if I could just get close to Jesus. Now, I understand that he's the Messiah. I understand he's God in the flesh. But the only thing this woman knew, was there's there is a person that if I can get close enough to, if I can get close enough to him, things would change for me. And I need for you to understand something. While people are looking on the internet for their answers, while they're Googling, while they're chat GPTing, or they're doing all these other things, while they're on social media, trying to amass followings of likes, they're still going to need a place where they can be in connection with God. They're still going to need a place where they can be in connection with you. They're still going to need a place where they can, they can emote what they're feeling and say what they need and be in community with people and not feel isolated and alone. The next part of the church, this next season of the church is going to have an emphasis on community connection and relationships we, we cannot we cannot at the sake of trying to be technologically advanced dismiss community your church is going to have to slow down and have connections with people there will always be something about the presence of god in the people with the people of god that is more powerful and more po- uh, more powerful more powerful rather and more palpable than what's happening in technology the third thing that we can do if the church is going to use our hands is have a commitment. We need a commitment to discipleship. Here's the reality. The reason why the numbers look the way they look is because I've heard this years ago. I can't even give credit to the source anymore. I, I'm just going to own it now. There are four, things, four, four cycles of belief. There's this four stages rather a cycle of belief that one generation believes the thing so much that they'll die for it. The next generation assumes what the previous generation believed, and they carry it. The third generation questions the beliefs. And if the questions aren't answered well, the fourth generation begins to reject the beliefs. We're watching this happen before our eyes. That I can see a generation of people that, that my grandmother believed Jesus in such a way she would starve believing that Jesus would provide for her. My mom just assumed that belief. She assumed it and raised us the same way. I, and I'm not telling you a story, I'm telling you my life, I questioned everything about my faith. At one point, I was running around thinking I wanted to be a black Muslim. And this is the reason why I bring up black identity cults, because I experimented with it. When I was a teenager, I went looking for my identity in something other than Jesus, although I was raised in a church. But here's the problem. I was raised in a church, not discipled in one. I was raised in a church, connected to people, but never taught my faith. So when I went looking for identity, I thought what everybody else thought about Christianity. Ah, this is some invention. They're just trying to control me. I wanted identity. So the good thing was I've had a father who who didn't grow up in the church. And when he came to faith in Christ, somebody took him under their wing and they discipled him. You know what my father did? He saw me straying and he grabbed me and he discipled me. I had questions. Had he not answered my questions correctly, I would have rejected the faith and I would not be standing here in front of you today. What I'm trying to do with my daughters is to stand with them and to teach them why it is that we believe what we believe. I will never even force a belief on my daughters. I ask them questions. We have conversation. We have connection. And I'm making sure that there is a commitment that I have to them to disciple them relationally. Here's the question. In our busy, technologically advanced world where you can Zoom call everything and do everything you need, who have you slowed down to disciple? We have to have a commitment to discipleship. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the conversation, the connection. Watch this. And the commitment. These people that would sit at the gate would be followers of a certain ideology, value system, belief system. This existed before Jesus. Jesus is using a cultural term to provide what it is that he wants to see his church doing. And here's the problem with us. We failed to do what he, what he calls to do. When he leaves in Matthew 18 and even Acts 1, he says, hey, here's what I need for you to do. Go make disciples. The future of the church is going to be dependent on the fact that we need to make disciples. Let me tell you why. Because people who don't know won't carry. And if they can't carry, they can't reproduce. God has called us to be to have a, a church that is, uh, our hands should be in it for conversation, connection, and commitment. Last thing, and I'm out of your way. I told you first that, that the church is in good hands. I told you second that the church can use your hands. And I have to give you three, three ways that that can happen. Here's the third thing. The church needs to change hands. Uh, my wife, my wife is, uh, was a track star. She ran track in high school. We met when we were 15 years old, Brother Floyd. And when we met, I was smitten. And so what I would do is i go to the track meets because I wanted to support her, to show her that, hey, I'm your guy. And so I would go to these track meets, and I would hang out, and I would watch. My wife ran a relay. She ran a relay race, and I learned a lot about the rules of a relay by watching my wife run track. And I keep saying watching my wife run track because you can see that this is not a track body. I would watch my wife run track and I would stand in the stands and I would love and I I grew to love track. So I learned the rules of track and field. And I still to this day when track meets come up, I watch them and I love the relay because the relay is this amazing race. Right. We've heard on several occasions that the relay only continues if you're willing to pass. Pass the baton. We've heard that in churches, and we're excited about it. And I used to watch it, and they would run. If anybody ever watched a track meet, they'd be running, and they would practice. I started watching the practices of track meets, and they would stick. They would practice the handoff. Stick. And they would practice the handoff. And they, they would practice the handoff when they were running. And here's the reality. It's not just passing the baton. It's passing the baton at the right time. There's a zone that you can pass the baton in, and if you run, if you pass the baton before or after the zone, you're disqualified. When I say that the church needs to change hands, I'm not saying that the church has anything wrong with its current leaders, but we do need to understand that there is a church sitting in front of us that is not the church of 2030, it is the church of 2023, and we have not given them the baton. And we cannot afford to run outside of the zone and wait to pass the baton to the next generation. Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the next thing he says is powerful. Jesus doesn't say, come ask me for the keys. And whenever you need to go somewhere, I'll come open the door for you. Now, this is Peter, who the omniscient savior knows is going to deny him later. He's not perfect, nor is he even by our standards ready. But Jesus says, in this moment, I give you the keys. Not continue to follow me and you'll be ready for the keys someday. He says, I give you the keys. If Jesus would give the keys to an impatient, impetuous Peter who he knew would betray him, who are you to keep the keys from the next generation? We need to change hands. And as I close, I want to remind us that Jesus gives us this This, this key, for now, for now, for now, the Black Millennial Cafe and Barna say that Gen Z, uh, 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 the Black Millennial, uh, Black Millennials and Gen Zers are more likely than their generational peers of other races to claim to be Christian, according to Barna research. They're saying that young Black Christians are more, more likely to say, I'm a Christian. Like 70% or so are saying I'm a Christian, which is greater than other uh, peers generationally of other races. This is great, but here's the thing that I've been telling to churches that I go consult about evangelism and the next generation. For now, that's the case. But if they don't get empowered to take ownership and leadership of the keys to the kingdom in our churches, they will leave too. And I'm telling you, many churches have missed the block to pass the baton. If we aren't careful the church can enter into a vicious cycle of mistrust between one generation and another. While one generation refuses to pass the keys of leadership and discipleship to another generation, the other generation gets frustrated and walks away, while the other generation then looks and says, see, they're not committed, which causes another part of that generation to say they'll never hand over the keys, which causes that other generation to say they're just not ready. It's a vicious cycle induced by the enemy. But... We can take that cycle and crush it in what Kara Powell, Jake Muller, and Brad Griffin describe in their book, Growing Young, as keychain leadership. They state that whoever has the keys has the power to let people in and keep people out. We keep talking about how certain people, certain groups of people at a certain age don't come to church. Could it be because their peers don't have keys? If whoever has the keys has the power to let people in and let them out, Here's the truth. Whoever has the keys are the people who let them in. We have to give them the keys. We have to pass them the keys. They say that a keychain leader is someone who is constantly opening doors for others while training others who are ready for their own set of keys. All right, I'm done. Uh, I want to say this. I I believe that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever live. I figured I'd get some applause from that. Uh, I told you I'm a sports fan. Bear with me for like 30 more seconds. Here's the reality. I used to hate LeBron James until he came to my team. I hated him because I told you that a superstar is a person that you want to have the ball in their hands at the end of the game. And I would watch LeBron with 30 seconds left in the game take the ball, dribble up the court, and pass it to somebody who would miss a shot. And I'm thinking, if you were a great one, you would take the shot yourself. Then I got convicted one day watching Michael Jordan highlights. Mike didn't take all the shots. There were times when Mike knew when to take the shot, but there were other times when Mike knew to pass the ball. I think the church, if we're going to be effective in 2030, are going to have to live a little bit more like passers than shooters. We've got to recognize that there is somebody on the floor that we've been equipping that has gotten better because they've been around us. They've been trained and they're ready now to receive the ball. There is a generation that is ready to lead now. The future is not in 2030. The future is right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we spent together in your presence to talk about how it is that you have always had the future of the church in your hands, that you declared that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So God, I pray that with that confidence, we will commit ourselves to putting our hands to what your hands have already begun to build, that our conversations, our commitments, and our connections will be different as a result of this. God, we thank you. We believe, God, that what's next is now, that there's a generation that we can hand the keys to and that you'll empower them to do what needs to be done, in Jesus' name, amen.